Zizi, thank you for joining us today on our program. To begin, what has brought you here to Austin? Well, um, uh, I'm a Longhorn alum. <laughs> I came here for my PhD, so I lived here from 97 to 2000, and I've been invited to give a talk on some work that I recently completed, looking at uh, Twitter use in the Arab Spring. So that's that's what I've, I'm here to, to speak on. And as you just mentioned, of course, you are a UT alum. Mm -hmm. You did your doctoral studies here. What was your experience like in UT as a student? I loved it. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it was ideal. It was an ideal environment for me to be in. Austin is a, is a really cool city. I mean, I think there's, the thing about Austin is there is not a single person who does not look cool. So when you think of, you know, university life, campus life, and you want to look for an, an academic environment that inspires you intellectually, but also gives you a nice, you know, social life that can complement your intellectual pursuits. You know, that sort of balance is very important. Uh, I think Austin is ideal. And of course, your PhD was in the School of Journalism here at UT. And mm -hmm. since then, your research has focused on, among other things, the social and political consequences of new media technologies. So take us through some of the highlights of the research that you've done. Well, you know, when I started looking at the uh, Internet as a social medium, uh, it was a very different medium, you know. It was um, a medium that we accessed through modems. You know, AOL was the prevalent mode of accessing the the Internet. There were just, you know, a handful of websites that people used, and most people did not use the Internet. So a lot of research questions that we asked had to do with why people use the internet or what kind of person uses the internet which is of course a question that we would never consider now you know now everybody uses the internet so we're just interested in you know what does it mean that we use facebook so much how does that alter the texture of friendship but you know the first study the the first study that i did um when I was getting my master's was a, a very quantitative study called predictors of internet use and because so few people used the internet back then I wanted to know who exactly used the internet and why and what was the typical profile of an of an internet user and I found interestingly enough uh, I mean I think that finding still holds that people use the internet as a functional alternative so so as a way to, you know, bring into their lives or let into their lives things that they do not enjoy enough of, you know, things that they would like to have more of, um, or things like they would like to access in a more convenient and an easier way. And following that, you know, I came here to Austin to do, um, uh, well, I mean, I was very much drawn to the interdisciplinarity of the school. You know, we were just talking about that. And at the time I was completing my doctoral work, um, the precursor to blogs, personal home pages, became very popular. So I, I did my dissertation on how people present the self through personal home pages. And then, I followed that up with further studies on then blogs that became very popular, and then I went on to study um, social network sites and you know how what sort of social behaviors uh, social network sites afford they invite. And I also have a parallel uh, line of uh, 
uh, research and interest that revolves around the political online. So what does it mean to be political online? So I've done some work on civility online. I've done some work on the net, the internet as a public sphere. And uh, lately I've just been very, very interested in the sorts of political behaviors that we find ourselves engaging in online. And so things like the Arab Spring. And one of your most well-known edited volumes uh, is titled A Network Self, in which you examine the topics of uh, self-presentation and uh, social connection in the digital age. How do you visualize this concept of a network self? Uh, you know, it's an ongoing pro. <laughs> it's an ongoing project. You know, it's a it's a work in in progress. But when I think of the network self, I'm thinking of opportunities for expression and connection that are afforded online. And I'm also thinking about um, challenges to um, expression and connection that are afforded online. So a lot of what we experience online when we try to present the self is an environment uh, wherein different kinds of contexts collapse. You know, there's a lot of ways in which the architecture of physical spaces supports our everyday communication. So if, you know, you and I want to have a private conversation right now, so we go into a quiet room, um, and the architecture of the room supports that conversation. It's a little bit more complicated to do that online. Um, there isn't, you know, we don't necessarily always have access to the architectural aids that support context in communication. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the network itself has to do with navigating these sort of opportunities and conflicts for expression that um, are afforded in networked environments supported by uh, online technologies. In another recent book of yours titled A Private Sphere, you attempt to address how digital media shape contemporary democracies and in turn how contemporary democratic systems shape digital media. What have been some of your observations uh, on this topic? Okay, I'm, I'm going to try to answer this one without you know, delving too much into the specific um, academic disputes within our discipline. So I wrote the book A Private Sphere because I felt uh, that a lot of the uh, behaviors online that had a political orientation that I was noticing, that I was researching, began to emanate from a private locus. So that didn't necessarily mean that people were isolated or lonely, but they were accessing a sphere of political expression from a vantage point that they occupied alone. They were connected, so they were not lonely or isolated, but they entered the sphere on their own. I think this says really interesting things about personal autonomy and the potential for personal autonomy that the Internet affords. And my inspiration for a lot of my work on autonomy is a Greek philosopher the Greek philosopher of autonomy, Cornelius uh, Castoriadis, because he's written very extensively about that. And a lot of the um, mo modern and postmodern struggles for, for control, he actually views and interprets through the lens of the lifelong struggle for, for personal, for individual autonomy. So I think that in a way, these technologies that support a private sphere 
um, do support a more autonomous approach to politics. Some of it has to do with, you know, the individualized nature of online media. You know, what we frequently refer to as networked individualism. And I was accessing some of that with my work on the networked self. But, um, you know, really most of this has to do with our efforts to use the technology to support our own, you know, inner, innermost pursuits and hopes uh, that are associated with this, with this lifelong pursuit of autonomy. We were just talking about the uh, private sphere and the network itself, but of course the Internet is also seen as contributing to the formation of a new public sphere or many new public spheres around the world. Uh, how do you view that, uh, that divide between the two? Yeah, so this is interesting. I don't really buy into that whole argument that, uh, you know, the Internet is creating a lot of public spheres. I think, uh, you know, the, the Internet is creating a lot of spaces that people can use to meet up so it affords the opportunity for a lot of different publics to get together. And these may be publics, you know, that connect people who previously knew one another, but they can also be very diasporic publics that are global and local at the same time, or global. So I don't think we're looking at public spheres. I think we're looking at networked publics, which is very important. Uh, but it is, you know, I mean, it is a distinction that I've been making time and time again in my work. We're not looking at a public sphere. We're looking at public spaces, and we're also looking at publics that are interconnecting. And some of the more striking examples of political activism online have very successfully connected publics. Not to produce a public sphere, you know, in the case of the Arab Spring, we're not looking at a public sphere, but we're looking at diasporic publics connecting very successfully around a common cause. The same thing applies to all the Occupy movement as well. And let's talk a little bit more uh, about some of these uh, protest movements. You actually gave a talk here at UT yesterday about the uh, Arab Spring and specifically about the Egypt. Mm. Um, how do you view uh, the role that social media outlets, Facebook and Twitter especially, have played in uh, the Arab Spring, also in the so-called Twitter revolution in uh, Iran and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of speculation about the role that social media have played in these, um, in these mobilizations. It, and it's a question that gets asked a lot. It's not the most interesting question in my mind, or the question to ask. I think the question to ask is, you know, is this a revolution? And it's a question that we can only answer with the benefit of time. You know, what I'm more interested in asking is, I like to take an alternative approach. Instead of asking, you know, how influential are these media, I like to just first go in and see exactly what is being said, uh, what sort of voice is being enabled, is being articulated through these media, what sorts of uses are people putting these media to. And that's what we try to do with some of our work on the um, Egyptian uprisings of uh, around January 25th that led to the resignation of Hosni Mubarak, as those were broadcast to the rest of the world via Twitter. And we found some interesting things. I mean, we were we were more interested in what sort of news feed Twitter produces and what's the form and the shape and the texture of news uh, that's being communicated to the rest of the world because in so many situations where 
microblogging rises to prominence is to provide people who do not have an audience to say what it is they want to say with precisely an audience and, and visibility for their cause. And so what we found was, you know, we found a number of different things, but what was really striking uh, for me is um, the ways in which, you know, the, the news feed on Twitter provided almost like an online home. Uh, for the revolution and provided an uh, ambient environment that sustained the, the revolution. So even when there was no new news happening, there was always something new being posted on the hashtag, which is very important for a movement uh, that is currently being shaped. You know, having that sort of ambience, that sort of constancy to communication helps drive a movement forward. It gives a sense, it sustains a sense that something is always happening and that can be very important for building and supporting cohesion to a movement. And then the second thing of course is that you know the medium just really turned on visibility for that particular uh, cause. How would you compare, for instance, uh, the role that social media have played in uh, the Arab Spring and the uprisings in the Middle East compared to the Occupy movement, which you mentioned a moment ago? Oh, you know, we frequently talk about those movements in the same sentence, but they're and it's reasonable to do so because they both have to do with injustice, but different forms of injustice. There's a number of different comparisons that you can um, draw. The one that I've been more interested in lately has to do with this idea of leadership and then how leadership takes form in a movement that has a very strong online face, you know, that has a very strong digital arm. So what was interesting about Egypt was then that uh, there was so much discourse, you know, so much rhetoric on the uh, on how that was a leaderless movement, right? It was the the result of a leaderless public, um, and that was used um, as a way that was used to legitimize the movement, to give it some sort of credibility, you know, to also vouch for the purity of the movement, to say, you know, this is not. Uh, a movement that is corruptible, you know, it's a it's a movement that unites and represents everyone. And you know, look, you know, it is a it, it is a to that effect, you know, it's a leaderless movement. Now we notice almost the opposite effect for the Occupy movement, because for that movement, it almost seems to be a problem that there is no leadership. You know, the Occupy movement is frequently criticized for being leaderless. You know, uh, mainstream media uh, suggest that the lack of leadership means that the Occupy movement has no agenda. So it's very interesting to me how lack of leadership in one case is used to legitimize a movement and then lack of leadership in the other case is used to discredit a movement. We're definitely looking at a, at a double standard here. And being that this is a Hellenic radio program, I'm sure much of our audience is interested in uh, the role that uh, social media may have played in the protests that have been taking place in Greece as well mm. over the past year. Yeah, well, so, and that's a whole <laughs> different situation altogether. Um, I mean, I th you know, there's some, there's some constants that drive um, a lot of the way in which social media is being put to use. Uh, across these different countries. And then there's also some differences, some very important differences that have to do with sociocultural context, economic, political context, historical context in general. 
But here's the one thing that all of these movements uh, have in common, especially in terms of how they use uh, the Internet. I mean, of course, all of them use the Internet to coordinate because it's a very com convenient means of doing so. But all of these movements use the inter Internet to make very strong, affective statements. And when I say affect, I'm referring to emotion. So a lot of these statements that are voiced online, that are articulated online, are about expressing emotion, expressing dislike. And that's why, you know, they're frequently criticized. So we hear people saying to, for instance, the Greek indignados, you know, what is your agenda? What exactly do you want? Well, that's not the point. That's not the point of the movement. And it's also not the role of the citizen to put forth an agenda. That's the role of the polity. The, the meaning of the movement is that expression of affect, of emotion. It's a really strong expression of a sense of discontent, dislike, a sense that the people have had enough. That in and of itself can be a very powerful political statement, even if it's not associated with a political agenda. These sort of powerful emotional political statements are frequently in oppressive regimes. They're frequently the first step to regime change. But they also are the first step in communicating directly with a governing system. Now, aside from looking at uh, social media, new media, and issues of uh, political discourse uh, on these uh, networks, your research has branched out into a few other directions as well. Uh, what are some other topics that uh, you have examined and some things that you might currently be working on? Yeah, I have, I mean, I have a split, split researcher personality or researcher personality disorder or something <laughs> like that. So most of my work focuses on the social and political consequences of the Internet. But um, every once in a while, you know, I get distracted. It all interconnects in my head in the end, but I've done some work on reality television. Uh, and so I'm very interested in how people process reality versus fiction content cognitively. And I'm also very interested in, you know, why people watch reality TV. What's the draw? And I've also done some other work that just looks at, you know, framing, uh, uh, framing of the news, how, um, how certain issues are portrayed in the news, and then how that affects how we think about those issues, how we talk about those issues. And that's, you know, because I come from a program in journalism, so my roots are in, in journalism. So some of the work that I've done in that area has had to do with terrorism and how terrorism is portrayed in, in the news media. To wrap up, where can our listeners find out more about you and your research and writing? I post all of my work on my website, and that's off of uic.edu tilde zizi. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at zizip. <laughs> zizip. And I, 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 use, I use social media constantly, <laughs> plugged into my phone or connected to it. It's an extension of myself. <laughs> Well, Dr. Babacharisi, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us today. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure.